Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. If there's one thing that I hope 2020 will teach us, uh, is that we're all connected, or interconnected, should I say. Uh, We need to escape our silos. Medicine, information, race, politics, economics, they're all intimately uh, bound up with one another, entangled. Um, and the challenge, I think, in 2020 is figuring that out and figuring out how we're going to use this broad crisis, this economic um, uh, and other crisis, to actually make things better. Uh, Steve Weber um, is the dean uh, or the associate dean uh, and head of the iSchool at UC Berkeley. And he's a guy who has spent his life, his career, it seems, escaping silos. He trained as a doctor. He taught in political science. He's an expert in economics, in government. Uh, and now as the head of the iSchool, he's focused on the digital revolution. Uh, Steve, how did you escape your silos? Uh, I guess I just kind of followed my nose where I thought the interesting and timely problems were, Andrew. And uh, luckily, the academic world creates a little bit of a uh, little bit of a niche for people who want to do that. Uh, So I took advantage of it. I've always my experience of academics is the reverse. Everyone gets shunted into their horribly narrow silos and spends 30 years writing the same article. But I assume a a few... (laughs) Brave or lucky souls like yourself escaped it. Um, now I didn't say I got. I didn't say the academic world rewards you for doing that. It often does not, but it will allow you to do it if you choose to take the risk. As uh, a guy who who trained to be a doctor, I think you got your MD at Stanford in the eighties, and has ended up as a professor of political science and then an expert in informational technology and the politics of uh, the digital revolution. Um, What has 2020 meant to you? Yeah, I guess like everybody else, um, I've been struggling to figure out what the longer term implications of this kind of multiple set of interdependent crises um, means for all of us, as as you started with. Um, It's almost too much to parse. And I think in some ways, Andrew, like my fundamental passion over the years in all of these different things I've done has been trying to find tools and ways of thinking that help people deal with overlapping uncertainties. And so I thought when this crisis began that maybe I was in a decent position to at least um, parse some of those uncertainties in a way that would help decision-making be more efficient, more effective, and manage risk. Um, But I gotta tell you, I'm not sure I've ever lived through a period where I feel like the level of uncertainty that's relevant to the kinds of decisions we need to make individually and on a social level going forward has ever been higher. So I don't feel terribly well prepared. Um, But I have been trying to kind of put a few thoughts down about where I think we're headed. 
Yeah, and one of the thoughts you put down was in a, a really interesting piece for the Bergeron Institute in, on March 11th, which I think was also published in the Washington Post, comparing uh, what we're living through now to 9-11. That was written a long time ago. Uh, yeah. every, every day in, in, in the spring of 2020 seems like a year. Do you stick to that? Is it still to you a moment in world history like 9-11? Well, it has some similarities um, that I think are worth paying attention to. The one that I think is most interesting from my perspective is, you know, if you go back and you read the 9-11 Commission report, um, in retrospect, it was really clear to people who were paying attention that something like that attack was going to happen. Um, In fact, you probably remember in the... um, the uh, publicly released parts of the presidential daily brief, the PDB, um, there was a statement that went up to President Bush some point in August saying, the lights are blinking red. And I think that became a chapter, uh, the title of a chapter of one of the chapters in the book um, that the 9-11 Commission report uh, published. And the pandemic was sort of like that in some respects. And I think this is, you know, to my mind, one of the things that we really all need to take away from this experience. There will be people who will continue to say incorrectly that this could not have been predicted, that nobody knew this was coming, or that it was a black swan or a low probability event or something like that. And that's just not right. Um, Everybody who looked at this problem, everybody who studied virology, every epidemiologist of any significant repute knew that this was possible. In fact, you know, we had a few false alarms, as you call them. Um, in the last few years, the MERS virus, the SARS virus, um, the Ebola semi-pandemic, um, we knew something like this could happen. We had done scenarios about it for clients um, when I worked with Monitor Group. The U.S. Um, National Security Council in its Global Trends Report in 2004 wrote explicitly about the possibility of a global pandemic. And if you read that document today, it's eerily prescient about what is now happening in front of us. So um, I guess the, the, the short version is you could see it coming. You could even imagine what some of the consequences might be, but we didn't act appropriately to prevent it. And I think in some ways that is exactly the story of 9-11. With 2020 hindsight, it was nearly inevitable. Um, the other thing that I think is, is interesting from a kind of a market economic perspective, I mean, 2008, we saw a one-time shock get multiplied into a longstanding major kind of historic economic crisis because markets broke down. That hasn't happened this time, at least not yet. Um, And I think there's good news there in the sense that the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world really learned the lesson from 2008 um, to not make the same mistakes that caused markets to break down in 2008, but it actually have responded to the shock really well. The long-term consequences we can talk about if you want, um, but in the short term, I think there's a little, little hint, little note of optimism there. Steve, as I mentioned, you you taught for many years at the in the political science department at Berkeley. Do you treat, and, and you live in Oakland, so you're very familiar with the, the racial politics now in America or the politics yeah. of race. Do you treat this dual crisis as a parallel one in America, the, the, the crisis of the pandemic and the crisis of race relations? 
or are they intimately bound up with each other? Boy, it's really hard to tell, Andrew. I mean, sitting here in the middle of June, um, you know, you'd like to believe that this is a moment in time where longstanding problems rise to the surface in a way and they kind of achieve a salience that they weren't able to achieve in normal times and things change as a result. Um, it could be. Sometimes multiple crises lead to multiple interdependent systems kind of changing together. My, my, my less optimistic side um, leads me to believe that um, systems of reform sometimes can be overwhelmed even by dealing with one significant crisis. And, um, and so I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't think anybody does. But um, I do think that many of the um, kind of bigger lessons we're learning about, as you put it again at the start of this conversation, interdependence between people, between issues, between societies, those seem to cross, you know, pandemics, racist, systemic racism, and probably some other things as well. I mean, our, our, if you cough and you're not wearing a mask, I'm at risk. Um, many of the kinds of things we worry about with regard to systemic racism, I think, have that characteristic as well. And it just might be that if we can manage one of these crises or one of these challenges, we'll learn to feel a little bit empowered to manage the others as well. I certainly hope that's the case. Um, but I'm also concerned that these, you know, if we think about these two crises as the ones that are most salient in our lives right now in the middle of June, there could be a third, fourth, or a fifth coming at us in the next six to eight months. Who knows? Um, and there are people out there in the world who would like to manufacture that third, fourth, or fifth crisis, whether it be a massive attack on the internet, a disinformation attack on our elections, or a conventional war in East Asia um, in, you know, on the Korean Peninsula. Though, th th there's a certain point at which I really worry about crossing a threshold. So or, an optimistic pessimist. Right, or, or, or as, as we've talked about on this show several times, the potential for some sort of violent unrest on the extreme left or perhaps more likely right in America. Let's talk specifically about that. Right, or both simultaneously, or sometimes it's even hard to distinguish the two. And who knows who's really left and right when it comes to yes. walking around with guns. Um, Steve, as I said, you, you've also written this, this really intriguing piece for... Noema magazine called The Long Shadow of the Future, which came out in June uh, 10th, so a few months after your original piece, give you a little bit more time to think about the, the implications of the crisis. You write about, as I said, the long shadow of the future, how it's going to impact on government. How is the government, particularly in America, done? Does it you're, you're, you're a professor. Does it, does it even get a C grade when it comes to both dealing with the, the political unrest and the, the coronavirus? Yeah. Well, I guess first I could say that uh, the government is a lot of different pieces of the government. I think the Federal Reserve has done really quite well. Um, if you think about the kinds of pressures, if you can think back to 2008 and how hard it was um, for the Fed and then later for the Congress to do significant rescue efforts in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. The politics of it were really, really nasty. Um, this time, the politics basically got submerged and both the Fed and the Congress stepped up and uh, acted on the basis of what they had learned worked in 2008. So 
I think there's some really good news there. I think if you um, look at sort of some of the sort of poor consistency of information and communications about quarantine, about um, different kinds of lockdown measures, about uh, therapeutics, about vaccines coming from the White House, it's obviously a completely different story. Um, but I wouldn't have expected any different because I think um, that part of the government is not really driven or motivated by science, um, but is driven and motivated purely by a sort of a particular perspective on electoral politics. All that said, I kind of think I'm surprised on the upside. It, ha it has turned out in some respects to this moment not to be as bad as I feared. Especially if you read Michael Lewis's book on the fifth risk, right? And sure. I mean, if you'd have read that and then you'd have heard of what was going to happen, you'd imagine complete anarchy. In your piece, you have uh, an interesting model for an effective government in, in the age of the pandemic, which is Taiwan. We don't hear that much about Taiwan, but you argue that the Taiwanese are really coping very well with the crisis. What is it about Taiwan that, that makes it this positive model? Yeah, it's a really interesting case. I mean, I think in part because you would have expected Taiwan, um, given as tightly as connected as it is um, to mainland China, to have suffered really, really badly from this pandemic. Um, but in part because, again, of that tight interconnection, and in part because of what went wrong in Taiwan um, during SARS, uh, Taiwan really responded in a very vigorous way. Um, and, you know, it's not an easy place to do that. It's got a raucous democratic culture um, like the United States, like Israel. Um, and it had a chaotic response to SARS in 2003. But this time, um, Taiwan, both the government and the society acted in a very rapid and decisive way. And you go back and look at the dates, very early January, um, Taiwan was decisive in putting border controls on, airline passenger checks. Um, in early February, Taiwan closed its borders uh, to passengers from China. In early February, I was living in LA. I was still sort of living my normal life. I was going to the to public gym and all that kind of stuff. So um, the Taiwanese understood sooner than we did um, both the severity of the crisis, and I think they were actually able to... Um, develop a kind of whole of government coordinated response uh, with rigorous testing and surveillance and isolation and interestingly, really centralized control over the distribution of personal protective equipment. These kinds of things um, would be uh, very, very difficult and unfamiliar to American government and American society, except in wartime. What's and, interesting uh, about your, your argument though about Taiwan, I think in particular, is that it's not Singapore. It's not no. this quasi-authoritarian technocracy. Uh, you, you, you write about the libertarian twilight, but it might also be the twilight of that neo-authoritarianism. If, if, if the Taiwanese model of, of, um, of efficient democratic management works, uh, then things perhaps aren't as dire as some people think. Yeah, it's a really interesting contrast with Singapore. You know, Singapore is set up to deal with pandemics in some respects, um, culturally and institutionally, being one of the most paranoid countries in the world. Um, easy for Singapore to kind of kick into emergency action mode. 
for a really raucous democracy, it's much harder. Um, but you know, I brought up Israel before. I think Israel, like Taiwan, um, has two characteristics that allow both of those countries to kind of shift into this slightly more coercive, slightly more centralized governance mode when it needs to do so. And probably the most important part of that is a society and a culture of people who have enough trust in government to say, okay, you know what? We're going to grant to government for a period of time a greater um, license to coerce in order to do the right thing without worrying quite so much, without fearing that once those powers are granted, they will never and can never be given back to society. That's the argument I hear again and again in the United States right now. For example, when it comes to contract tracing technologies, if we allow governments to collect data on who we're with, they will never give up that capability and they will use that data in insidious ways to hurt our freedoms later on. That, that's a real concern but it's a concern that Taiwan was able to overcome in the interest of the greater good right now. I think that I this don't is think a, the United States is there. I think this is a really important point. This, um, th- this scarcity of trust in the American system, you, you bring up Taiwan and Israel and the third country I would add to that, which is also dealing very well with the, with the crisis is Estonia, all of yes. which all three are kind of startup nations and of course, all three are highly, highly sophisticated from a tech point of view. They're wired countries. Um, as the as the dean of the I school or the associate, the assistant dean of, of the I school, you manage the I school at Berkeley. Um, what does twenty twenty mean mm. from the point of view? of the digital revolution? I know that's a big question, Steve, and we've only got three or four minutes to answer it, but is this going to be uh, the the 1917 or the 1848 or the, uh, the 1989 for the digital revolution? Well, I'm gonna be contrarian if I can with regard to digital technology. I think, um, you know, I feel like over the last 10 weeks or something like this, um, Many of us have undergone 10 years of digital transformation. Uh, we're all now working from home. We're doing stuff on Zoom. It, we're buying e-commerce at a much, much higher level. So like changes uh, of sort of incorporating digital technologies into everyday life that people thought would take a decade have happened in a couple of months. But I don't think, despite the fact that we all appreciate what digital technology has done to make quarantine endurable, I don't think people have lost their um, fear and distrust for the technology industry as a result. Um, I think they've invited technology into their lives with a sense of like, we really wish we didn't have to do this Um, and not with a sense of appreciation and gratitude. And I, I, I think the challenge is right now we need more technology in our lives, not less. Um, And because we don't trust the technology companies to do the right thing in the long term and not to use whatever information they learn about us, data they collect um, for their purposes, which often amounts to selling advertisements rather than for the public good, we're actually setting boundaries. And what we need is more technology, not less. Again, I'll point to the contact tracing issue. This is a problem that can be solved 
by technology, but we're not going to let it happen. So my contrarian view is that I think it's the, the, the technology industry right now has a little window of opportunity. It's slipping away fast, but there's a little window here for the technology industry to rewrite the terms of its relationship and try to reestablish trust with society. Um, and that's a really big, broad statement, but I think there's a possibility it could be done. And in one minute, Steve, if Mark Zuckerberg is listening, I know he always listens to this show. Um, yeah. What would you tell him? How do how do how to come? How do guys like Zuckerberg and and Bezos yeah. and and the other multi-billionaires, probably trillionaires, by the time people hear yeah. this, uh, running these companies? How are they going to rebuild that trust? And and you're well, you teaching know, yeah. and, and at Berkeley, of course, you're teaching the next generation of tech leaders. So this is a real issue yeah. for you. Well, we you never rebuild trust on the cheap. That's the number one lesson to learn. The, the way you change people's reputations and perceptions of you is to do what game theorists call costly signals. Um, it means accepting real costs to demonstrate that you're not what people think you are. And so some very concrete things you could do. I'll give one or two examples. One example, just pay your fair share of taxes. Don't wait for governments to change the tax laws, agree to, let's call it a kind of voluntary covenant that says, we're going to establish a corporate AMT, you know, like an alternative minimum tax, like we pay as individuals, which sets a boundary of fairness. There's no reason in the world that technology companies should pay a lower rate of tax overall than say Procter Gamble and Ford Motor Company. And rather than have governments impose those taxes on you, which is coming, Mr. Zuckerberg, it's coming, you might as well step up to the plate and agree to do it yourself right now. That would be a costly signal. There are other such things like that that the technology companies could do um, that would demonstrate actually that in addition to simply wanting to make money, they have the long-term interests of society in their sights. It's not impossible. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but there is a chance right now for them to do it. Finally, uh, Steve, you've, you've written a, a lot of books, um, The Success of Open Source, The End of Arrogance, America in the Global Competition of Ideas. People should, of course, read your, your books. But what are you reading or what should people yeah. be reading uh, in this summer of discontent as they're all still stuck at home? Well, I think for everybody, right? You need a you need a fun book and you need a serious book. So, uh, which one do you want me to talk about first? Uh, I think the serious one. Then we'll end on the fun one. Okay. So, um, I take this is my dirty little secret, Andrew. I take the summer to reread old classic political sciencey books that um, that I loved when I was in grad school. I was going to say when I was a kid, when I was in grad school, and when I reread them, I learn a lot more. So, this summer for me is Albert Hirschman. And I just reread Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, which is a classic of Hirschman's. You know, Hirschman was a kind of a iconoclastic economist who wrote in plain English. And um, it's a simple and genius book. And it is absolutely as valid and interesting today as it was when he wrote it. So it's Exit, Voice, and Loyalty by Albert Hirschman. But really, and, any uh, of Hirschman's it's, a, it's a book that does a great job escaping traditional academic silos, crossing over absolutely. sociology and economics to politics. And then a, and a fun book to keep us amused, if we well, can't be amused in these dark times. Since I was living in L.A., I've become a fan of L.A. crime fiction. I started with Michael Connolly, but now I'm reading Raymond Chandler. 
And wow, was he a good writer. He was a great writer. So Raymond Chandler, The Big Sleep. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.